All right, all right. Good morning, Transit family. How y'all doing today? We good? Hey, man. Great to see you all. Um, if I haven't met you yet, this is your first, first time at the Transit. My name is Nick. I am one of the pastors here, and as that video showed, we're going to be diving into uh, continuing our sermon a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, uh, turn to Matthew 5, or tap to Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And as you're turning there, uh, a funny thing happened last week. I've been, I grew up in the church, and I've never had this happen before, where at the church last week, somebody left a rodent in a cage for my family to take home for this week, okay? Anyone here have a rodent as a pet? It's a hamster. It's a dwarf hamster, okay? Anyone here? Yes, okay, we got one in the back. Oh, people, people like kind of like giving like one of these, not like really. Ex- Anyways, um, so my kids really want a hamster or a mouse or a guinea pig. And so we're, we talked to Brian and Ashley Cole, and we're like, hey, can we babysit uh, Scooter is the hamster's name. Precious Scooter. Uh, and so for the last seven days, we've had this hamster in a cage. Uh, but the first day, the first 24 hours, this poor guy, um, he almost died multiple times, okay? It was like straight up torture. My kids, he never got a, 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 a waking second to himself. And I'm in the kitchen, and I hear my girls say, we're putting Scooter, like, they, didn't, they weren't talking to me, but they're like, Scooter, you're going into timeout. And uh, that's never a good thing, okay? And then all of a sudden, do you all know what magnet tiles are? Yeah, yeah, the little squares. So then I hear the sound of magnet tiles slapping, you know, like, and the air sealing in the, in the glass-enclosed nerve center that ham, the hamster is now in, like, and I'm like, and it didn't really, it didn't really register to me, and then I'm thinking, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what the lung power is on hamsters, but uh, I can't imagine it's that long, so I rush in, and I see um, literally the, the poor little scooter that we've been entrusted with this life uh, for this other family that's letting us borrow is in a cage this big without any oxygen coming in, Okay. Yeah, he was in timeout. And thankfully, I had a long talk with my kids, and I said, hey, this is not our hamster. And even if it was our hamster, it's God's hamster, and we need to treat it as such and not suffocate the thing, okay? And the reason I share that, it does have something to do with what we're talking about today, is today, if you've turned to Matthew 5, 17 through 20, we're talking about God's law. And we're seeing what Jesus says about God's commands. And we're seeing, like, the whole Sermon on the Mount is about the ethics of the kingdom of God and how we are to reorient our lives to what God says we are to value and how we are to live our lives. And often when we talk about God's law, we can view God as kind of this mean, angry tyrant who whenever he sees us having fun or laughing or enjoying life, he, you, we hear the sound of the magnet tile slapping and all of a sudden we're suffocated and restricted in our movement, Right? We feel like God's law binds us and restricts us and suffocates us. And the truth of the matter, what we're going to be looking at today is God delights in us. You guys realize that, right? That's why Christ came. That's why God gave his son, the father gave his son out of love for you while you were sinners. Christ died for you. And so God gives the gift of his son and he gives the gift of his commands because he delights in us. And he knows what's best for us and he wants what's best for us. And his law is his heart. His ethic, he's saying this is the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. Live your life according to this and it will go well with you. Not well defined by worldly standards, but well defined by heavenly standards. And so the main thrust of my sermon this morning, the title of my sermon is the law of love. The law of love. Because what we're going to see today is that when we begin to fully grasp and comprehend 
God's unfathomable love for us in Christ Jesus, then and only then, then and only then will we gladly respond in delightful obedience to him. When the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes to the wonder and the beauty of Jesus, his love for us, even in the midst of our sins and our brokenness, who he is, what he's done for us, and what is now ours in him, that's the rocket fuel to our glad, not dutiful, our delightful obedience to our Father. So let's dive in to Matthew 5, 17 through 20. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about what Jesus has to say on the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. Do not think, Jesus say, speaking, verses on the screen, I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you with mouths full of praise, God. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you've cleared the debt of our sin that we can never pay, God. All of our transgressions against your law, there is not a single one of us coming here who has not transgressed your law, God, and deserving of your wrath, God, and your just judgment for our sins and our transgressions. The thoughts that flash across our mind that we agree with, the anger and the lust we're talking about next week in the Sermon on the Mount, that reigns sometimes and rules in our hearts, Lord Jesus. And Lord, what your beautiful, precious gospel teaches us is that in the midst of our transgressions, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our wickedness, that you didn't just give us your law, you gave us the gift of your son, Jesus, to free us from the curse of sin, to free us from the legal requirements of the law, God, and to set us free so that we no longer walk in the flesh, but we walk by the power of your spirit, empowered now to walk in the newness of life. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, God, for those that are living in the land of condemnation and guilt and shame and hatred of themselves, God, I pray that you'd break that off right now in the name of Jesus through the preaching of the gospel, God. And that you'd take up residence, God, your lordship, your reign and rule, take up residence in our hearts. So come, precious Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, and have your way with our minds, our hearts, our affections, our souls in our lives, Lord Jesus. We belong to you. You purchased us with your blood. And so have your way, I pray, Jesus, that you would be magnified and glorified, and I would step out of the way of the work that you want to do with your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, hey, what immediately sticks out in how Jesus opens this section on the Sermon on the Mount is he starts with this phrase, do not think, do not think. And we need to ask the question, well, when is that phrase necessary? The do not think phrase is only necessary when you know that people are thinking things that aren't true about what you're thinking, right? Like maybe you've busted that out in your marriage before, right? To your spouse over why you're putting uh, glasses on the countertops rather than in the dishwasher, right? Just to clear out some things, okay? And so what Jesus is doing here when he's starting with do not think with this refrain is he's clearing the air. He's setting the record straight on his stance on the Old Testament scriptures, when he says the law and the prophets, that was the colloquial way of saying the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. And what Jesus is doing is he's clearing, the, he's clearing the air because there was a misinformation campaign. There was some fake news 
that was trending about Jesus' view on the Old Testament. And the reason for that misinformation campaign is if you've read the Gospels, you know that there's this constant, incessant tension that Jesus has with the scribes and the Pharisees in his ministry, with the religious establishment of his day. Who were the scribes and the Pharisees? In first century Judaism, the scribes and the Pharisees were the revered religious elite, the religious political leaders of Judaism. Through hard work and effort, they had arisen to the upper echelons of political and religious influence. These people, the Pharisees and the scribes, they set the pace, they set the tone, they set the culture for God's people of what it meant to be God's people. They strictly adhered to God's law to the extent that they created thousands upon thousands of other laws that weren't God's laws so that they wouldn't transgress God's law. It's called the Mishnah. God, if God's law is offense, well, they created thousands of more fences to get as far from ever transgressing God's law. Imagine the magnetile slapping and suffocation coming. That's what God's people were living under, under the tyranny of this pharisaical masquerade that they called love of God, which was not love of God. It was love of his law. There's a, there's a world of difference between loving God's law and loving God. Uh, Jesus, and we're going to talk about that later. Get ahead of myself. And so these commands, for instance, so what they, they would do is there would be a command, keep the Sabbath holy. And they say, okay, got it, Jesus. We're going to create this thing called the Mishnah, and we're going to add a thousand stipulations on that. So before, I mean, imagine this, imagine this. Before you have the luxury of Apple Watches and Fitbits to track your steps, on the Sabbath, they would, these guys would dish out a God-ordained step count for you on the Sabbath. Like, you ain't going for a run. You ain't going for a jog. You can only walk like 500 steps on the Sabbath. And you somehow had to track that on the Sabbath. How many? One, two, three. Dang, okay, I got to go lay down. Like, what are you supposed to do, right? The, the amount of letters that you could write on the Sabbath. So they're now, they're now regulating your email correspondence on the Sabbath. Like, it's awful, right? It's tyrannical. And that's what they did. That was these extra biblical commands. And this is what we see throughout Jesus' ministry is you constantly hear the, the sound of Pharisees and scribes' heads exploding because of what Jesus is doing. Like, pop, 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 pop. Like, oh my gosh. What they're seeing is in Mark 7, if you go read Mark 7's, Mark 7, not Mark 7's, I don't know where that came from. Mark 7 is the disciples, oh my gosh, gasp. They're eating food, but they didn't wash their hands first. Oh my gosh, it's like the CDC meets like religiosity and just, oh, it's all it's just awful. So they're chirping at Jesus. They're saying, you guys, are, you guys haven't hit their dishing out hand sanitizer, you know, like whatever. And then also, you know, the, the main refrain was that Jesus continually healed on the Sabbath. His disciples plucked grain on the Sabbath. And they were saying, you are violating the Sabbath. You are blind. So that, that's the indictment that came against Jesus. And this is why Jesus is saying, do not think, because the indictment that came is Jesus is blaspheming God's law. He's nullifying the entire Old Testament. And uh, to do that, that's God's law. So he's, 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 like, he's like nullifying God himself, and he's a blasphemer, and he needs to be treated as such. He needs to be put to death. And the, the religious leaders from very early on in Jesus' ministry sought, sought to put him to death. And the bottom line is this, is the only thing Jesus Christ came to abolish was not the Old Testament scriptures, but was the Pharisaical masquerade the misinterpretation and the misapplication of the Old Testament scriptures by the religious elite of the day. Jesus came to give us freedom. He came to, in his teaching, to fulfill the law and show us what God's true intent about his law was. It was the law of love. If you love me, you will obey 
my commands. So all that to say is this, is that in the face of this fake news campaign, Jesus doubles down and he says, if you want to know my stance on the Old Testament scriptures, here's my stance. All of it, yes, all of it will be fulfilled. And what he says in our text is down to the smallest stroke of the Hebrew alphabet, every cross T and every dotted I will come to pass before the world ends. All of it, Genesis to Malachi is from God. All of it is completely trustworthy and all of it, it will be fulfilled. And when Jesus here, transit family, says all, guess what that means in the Greek? It means all, okay? Jesus, did you mean Leviticus too? Is that from God? Those purity laws? Yes. The conquest of Canaan? The bloodshed in the, bloodshed in the Old Testament? Jesus says, yes, all of it. All of it is trustworthy. All of it is from, uh, is from God. And so where we get church family, if we trust Jesus with our sins and our salvation, we trust him with his view of the scriptures. We don't get our view of the Old Testament from the new atheists. We don't get our view uh, 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 of the Old Testament from this scholar or that scholar or whoever's opinion. We don't get our view of the Old Testament from what we like and what we don't like. We get our view of the Old Testament scriptures from what Jesus here gives a blanket stamp of approval. And his book review on the Old Testament is all of it's from God, and you mark my words, all of it will be fulfilled. All of it, every, every dot and every iota, every dotted I and cross T in the Hebrew alphabet will be fulfilled. And then Jesus goes a step further, and not only is he saying is that all of the Old Testament from the law and the prophets, all of it is from God, it's inspired by God, by the Spirit, all of it is trustworthy, you can trust your life on it, but all of it will be fulfilled by me. It's all about me, it's my autobiography, everything in it points to the coming of the Messiah, the coming King who would set God's people free from the tyranny of their sin and their enemies, the curse of sin and the clutches of the demonic. And what we learn about the Bible is that Jesus is saying is that the Bible is not the car manual to life. It's not a bunch of principles that you just apply to your life and then your life goes really well. Because who's remarkably absent from that application? God is. If you, if this is just a self-help book and you, self-help book, you don't need any vertical redemption you don't need any forgiveness. You don't need any indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to help you live the Christian life. You just need the book and, and obey the books in your own strength. You're, you're, a, you're on a different world. The, you're on a different planet, on a different, I don't even, maybe even a different religion than what Jesus Christ came to do. His work was a work of reconciliation. Redemption is for the sake of relationship. You and I on our face in adoration for the living God who's present with us by the Spirit. And that's what he came to free us from, was from this pharisaical masquerade. They loved God's law. They had to have an ounce of love for God in their hearts. They have an ounce, and, and, and oh, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Woo, okay, here we go. And what Jesus is saying is this. The scriptures reveal the beautiful unfolding of God's plan to rescue, redeem, and restore all the sinful creation from the curse of sin and the clutches of the demonic through the Messiah who the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied about, who the New Testament eyewitnesses said had come, and then the rest of the scriptures say this Messiah is coming again to fully and finally make all things right from beginning to end. It's all about this precious king who's come to rescue us. He is the hero of the story from start to finish. We are the ones, we are the ones being rescued. He's the overcomer. We're the ones who are being rescued. Thank you, God. It's not about us. Thank you, God. John 5, 37 through 40, Jesus says this. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. This is Jesus talking in response to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, who it says earlier in John 5 were seeking to kill him. 
His, Jesus says, the Father's voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you. Jesus talking to guys? If you're a Pharisee, you have to memorize the first five books of the Torah in, he, in Hebrew. You have to memorize Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Genesis. They had it memorized. And Jesus says, His, his voice you have never heard heard and you do not have his word abiding in you because their faith never made it from their head to their heart their hearts were not yielded to god they had no love for god they they saw religion as memorizing downloading scripture studying it and then just applying to their lives without any crying out and saying this this law is crushing me and i need a savior and his name is jesus i need the messiah i can't do this in my own strength and jesus continues you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What Jesus is saying is this, and you hear me this, Trans Church, we hold the scriptures in the highest regard. We come under the authority of God's word here. We preach from the scriptures here. I want to give you what God says, not what Pastor Nick thinks is, is good for y'all, Right? What Jesus is saying, if you have an issue with what I'm about to say, take it up with Jesus. He's saying the Bible doesn't save you. He's saying the Bible testifies about the one who does. A person that you're invited to lay down your life for because he laid down his life for you in love for you. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's saying. And often, and often what we see here in John 5, it's terrifying because the Pharisees' tragic mistake has often been my tragic mistake in my quiet times. Just got to read your Bible more. I just got to read my Bible more. I got to read. Yeah, absolutely. Study the scriptures, please. Study it. Read it more than any book. The pages highlighted, pages ripped, the covers, all that stuff. Get into the very revelation of God on the pages of scripture. But when you run to the Bible, run to connect with the living God. Pray, worship, have it come and search you. Don't search, your, don't search the scriptures like this is a, a, a lab experiment and you're dissecting it. No, what scripture is, is it, it dissects your heart. It's the Lord by the spirit dissecting you. You sit under it. It's you coming under God and his word and saying, God, search me and see if there any be, be any grievous way in me. Psalm 139, and lead me in the way of everlasting. And so Jesus here is saying, and then he goes to Luke 24, 43 through 47. The context of Luke 24 through, four, uh, through 44 through 47, what Jesus is saying is this. It, it, he's resurrected now, and this is before his resurrection and his ascension, and he appears in resurrected form to his disciples, and he has a Bible study with them, and this is what he does. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Watch this, watch this. That everything written about who? Who? About me. Everything written about me. Where? In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms has to be fulfilled. When you go to the Old Testament, as, as 21st century redeemed sinners, we go through the gospel lens of Jesus Christ. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament, not the Old Testament interpreting the New. Why do we have that hermeneutic, that interpretive tool to look at Scripture? Because that's what Jesus did with his disciples. That's what he did. When he opened up the Bible, he said, it's all about me. It's all about, let me finish this first. Okay. <laughs> and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that, watch this, the repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus opens the book. 
And he says, look at all the, 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 the sacrificial system you see throughout the Old Testament. That is no longer needed because I fulfilled that sacrificial system as the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of man. There's no need. I fulfilled it, and therefore, yes, that system, that temple becomes obsolete. The priesthood, I, that, there no longer is a need for a priesthood because I fulfilled it as the great high priest who now is your mediator, your mediator before God. He's the one who gives you access. He tore the veil through his death and resurrection. So you now have access. All the kings, let's look at all the kings and Samuel, kings, chronicles, all the kings who failed and failed and failed. I'm a king. You no longer need, we no longer need a king. He's talking to his disciples, something, probably something to this effect. You no longer need a king physically enthroned in Jerusalem because I'm going to ascend to the highest throne in all the land. And you will worship me as King of kings and Lord of lords and you will go to the nations and you will tell them that this king has risen from death to life and he has given amnesty to anyone who will give their trust and their lives to him. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's all about me. It's all pointed to me. The good shepherd, the high priest, the truer and better Moses, the Messiah who was to come. And the beautiful comfort in all of this is that if it's all about Jesus, then it's not all about us. If it's all about him, then it's not about us. This worship gathering, the Sunday service, has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with the, the transit brand. It has nothing to do with growing a church. It has everything to do with the glory of King Jesus. All of us, man, his inheritance, his blood-bought inheritance coming here. And we want to fix our eyes on, on, on pastors. We want to fix our eyes on sermons. And the only reason all of us are in this seat is because our king shot out of the grave and resurrected to the throne. Amen. We come here, man, and we, we're wrestling with shame and condemnation. And that's no longer what we stand in anymore. And we're reminded, we're reminded of what our king has done. It's all about him. If it's all about him, it has nothing to do with us. Thank God it has nothing to do with me. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, my gosh. It's the most freeing thing in life when you give, trust Jesus with the lordship of your life and you get off the throne and you're saying, thank God. That was exhausting. <laughs> you know? And if it's fulfilled, if he fulfilled the law on our behalf, then we are finally free to stop living our lives, laboring in fear to be saved through our good works. And that's the gospel. The most amazing news on the planet is that thanks to Jesus' perfect life, his perfect obedience to the Father, and his perfect sacrifice, we are freed from the debt of our sins and the demands to perfectly obey the law. Look at Romans 8, 1 through 4 with me. Romans 8, 1 through 4. We're going to camp out of here for a little bit. Watch this. There is therefore now no condemnation. Receive that. Believe that today. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son, thank you God for sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin on the cross, He condemned sin in the flesh. Watch this. Why did He do that? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but now we walk according to the Spirit of the living God who indwells us thanks to King Jesus. So the first thing we see here is what this is unabashedly saying, the Holy Spirit inspiring the Apostle Paul. He's saying, the law, obedience to the law, just give me God's commands, give me the principles, and in the flesh I'll obey it. That would never save you. Scripture makes crystal clear we have all sinned and we have all transgressed God's law and we've all fallen short of his glory, which means that the law, the purpose of the law, one of the purposes of the law is to reveal our desperate need for a savior, which returning to Matthew 5, verse 20, leads Jesus to say this. I tell you, watch what Jesus says here. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And what Jesus Christ is saying there is that the righteous requirement of the law is moral perfection. Not just in your actions, but in your heart and your mind. And <laughs> disclaimer, uh, uh, warning, if you want to skip next Sunday, we're talking about anger, and then after that we're talking about lust. Sorry, I'm not talking about it. Jesus is going to talk about it. And he's going to talk about how it all starts here, and it all starts here. It all starts in your heart before it ever recruits your hands, is what Jesus says. And he's saying, he's saying, moral perfection, not just in action, but in affection and in your thoughts and in your heart is what is required before a holy and just God. Now listen, this is crushing. And imagine a first century fisherman who nine to nine, sunrise to sundown is just fishing to make a living. Never opened up a scroll in his life. He just goes to the synagogue to hear, you know, the Pharisee Shmuel tell him about the law. Anyone watch The Chosen? You know, you got that reference. Go watch The Chosen. <laughs> Interpret the law for him, right? And he sees the Pharisees, and, and it's, like, it's like this small minority of the population that everyone looks to and sets the culture of what it means to. It's like, it's like professional athletes, right? And a fisherman would look at that and say, I can't, I can't exceed their righteousness. I mean, these dudes, they tied their spice rack. They've memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. They, they say these beautiful long prayers. I can't pray like those guys. It's like, it's like Jesus saying to me, unless, <laughs> unless your basketball skills exceed that of Steph Curry and LeBron James, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And me going, Jesus, I am a 5'8 white man. And I, my vertical is like two feet, okay? Like, I, what do you mean? Not, not that I can just compete with them, but I have to be better than them in my moral performance. And Jesus is saying that to show our desperate need for a savior. This is how Sinclair Ferguson says this. This is how Sinclair Ferguson says it. He says, Jesus did not weaken the law. Watch this, watch this. On the contrary, he let it out of the cage in which the Pharisees had imprisoned it, following it, allowing it to pounce on our secret thoughts and motives and tear to pieces our bland assumption that we are able to keep it in our own strength. Is that beautiful? That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's letting it out of its cage. The Pharisees just had it all be about their hands. And Jesus lets it out of his cage and says, it's all about your heart. And it crushes us and it causes us to cry out the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven is understanding your spiritual bankruptcy. So first we see is that the law can never save us. It reveals our desperate need for a savior as transgressors of the law, which we all are. And then secondly, what we learn in Romans 8, going back to the Romans 8 verse, 
is that Christ's fulfillment of the law was a substitutionary fulfillment, meaning it was done on our behalf. If you look at Romans 8, verse 4, it says this, that the work of Jesus Christ in order that was in order that why? The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so stated differently, this is what Scripture teaches us. Jesus Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law is now our perfect fulfillment of the law. Isn't that amazing? His righteousness is imputed to us. His perfect obedience is given to us. We are justified freely by faith, looking outside of ourselves. It's not introspection, mustering up my own righteousness. It's extrospective. Faith is looking outside myself, looking to Jesus and saying, I want what he has to offer. And I have to reveal that I desperately need what he died to give me. And um, the way I like to illustrate this is, is just imagine that you're massively in debt in like reckless living, okay? So you have like five Lamborghinis you're trying to pay off. You got like five mortgages, uh, you know, 15 student loans. The interest is crazy. And you have the audacity to think you don't know of any other option, but you're just doubling down in self-will and effort. You're, you've got three jobs. You're grinding your fingers to the bone. Every, every month, the bills are coming in. You're saying, I can still do it. I can still strive. You're selling a kidney to make it. You're selling your third car. You're, you're liquidating your assets. You're saying, I can do it. And you're crawling over hand and foot just to make ends meet. And the debt just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's crushing you. And you finally realize that I will never, unless I live you know, 300,000 years, I will never be able to pay off the crushing weight of this debt that I'm reminded of day after day when all the bills are coming in and you cry and you say, God, save me. God, help me. And then immediately you hear a knock at the door and it's King Jesus saying, I liquidated all my assets to clear your debts if you want it. If you want your debt cleared. I paid it all. All in full. Right now. In an instant. You put your trust in me. I liquidated my very life. All of the resources of heaven laid down for you if you want that. And the reason I share that is this. As often as believers in Christ, we do not live our lives in that reality. How many of us, how many of us this week alone are making, are making agonizing, grueling monthly payments on a mortgage that's already paid off? The house is fully paid for. The car is fully paid for. And yet we're biting our fingernails in condemnation and in guilt and trying to atone for our sins when they've been atoned for in full. When Jesus on the cross says it is finished, he meant it is finished. He said your debt of sin went from an innumerable amount of transgressions against God's law to when you open up your mortgage statement on your fifth house, it's 0.00 owed because it's, your debt's been paid in full. And how often do we not live in that in light of that reality? We're paying, we're making payments, thinking that our good works and our efforts are earning salvation before God when the battle has already been won. Stop making payments on account that's already been paid for. By Christ, Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says this, And you were dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by can't, watch this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against, against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your debt has been paid. There's peace. There's comfort in that salvation rest securely in Christ's work, his righteousness, not your own, so that like that song we were singing earlier, our boast will be his righteousness alone, not my own, until the day I die. 
Thank you, God, for what you've done on my behalf. So that begs the question. That's justification by faith in Christ alone. It's how we're saved. It's a gift of God's grace. Grace. It's all Christ that he's done for. It's a free gift of salvation that he paid for. But it begs the question, well, if Jesus has fulfilled the law to free me from its legal demands, then what should my posture be towards God's law, towards his commandments? What should my posture be? In verse 19, Jesus answers that question, and he says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If we were to ask Jesus, what do you mean when you say relax the commandments of God? He's like, I fulfilled all of it. And then he says, therefore, he's connecting the dots. This is a follow-up sentence. It's a continuation of the thought of the previous sentence. He's saying, therefore, if you relax even one of the least of these, you'll be called least in the kingdom of God. And I think I, I would interpret what relaxing the commands looks like. It looks like the crazy idea that we think we get to choose which commands to follow. It's like us, it's, it's relaxing commands. Looks like when Nick's lordship over his life, he reads the Sermon on the Mount and he encounters Christ's lordship in his life and which one wins? Which Lord wins? That's what re- relaxing is autonomy. Uh, I'm a law unto myself. Autonomous, self-law, law unto myself. Meaning that when I go to God's word, I actually go above it and I get to basically choose what kind of lifestyle I'm going to live and then make the Bible adjust to me rather than get on my face and proclaim Christ as Lord and adjust my life to what he says. That's what it means to relax the commands, is to think that we get to choose which commands of Jesus that we get to follow, right? That's what it means to relax. And I think one of the biggest things that we have to realize, going back to the illustration, say, about a crushing mortgage on a house that we can't pay Uh, get paid off is what we have to realize is that when that mortgage that debt of sin is paid off guess now who owns the house right our debt of sin is paid he says i'll pay that debt in full if you give me the title and the deed to your house to your life that's what it is and so often we've preached we've preached a, a gospel that's not a full gospel we've just preached jesus as the forgiveness of your sins just pray this prayer jesus will forgive you of your sins and you're still lord of your life Go live however you want. Thank God, and you can just go do what you want. And that's not how it works. You can't have Jesus as your Savior and not have him as your Lord. Because the only way you get your debt forgiven is when you transfer the ownership of your life to him. That's how that works. That was the gospel Jesus preached. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Go read Luke, Luke 14. Jesus says, unless you renounce everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. That's the gospel Jesus came and preached. Is, is, is we want that debt of sin free? Absolutely. And when we do that, thank God, Jesus takes ownership. He holds the title and the deed to our life, meaning that he is Lord. He owns us. He's bought us with his blood, and now we belong to him. Our life is not our own. The scriptures put it this way, Luke 9, don't take my word for it, Luke 9, 23 through 24. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. You got to die to yourself to follow Jesus. And take up your instrument of death, his cross daily. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. First Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. The context of this is that the Corinthians were just um, fully embracing the sexual norms of uh, the, the broader society in Corinth, and they were living sexually immoral lives. And this is the motivation that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives them to repent of their sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. That refrain right there. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So therefore now glorify God in our body. Relaxing the commands is saying, I am my own and I will live how I want. And I will receive Jesus' forgiveness and still decide and still call the shots of my life. And what scripture makes unabashedly clear is yes, Jesus has cleared the debt of our sin. And yes, now he, uh, he bought you with a price so that you don't belong to you anymore. You belong to Jesus. Thank God. Thank God because we make terrible gods. We make terrible gods. We give the leadership of our lives, the lordship of our lives to Jesus. And so here's, watch this. Why? Why would Jesus clear the debt with his death on the cross for us, for our sins? Why would the, he then claim ownership and purchase us out of the clutches of the demonic and to, to us? Why would he do that? Why? So that he could dwell with us. Because we've got to be careful if we don't miss what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. He says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So Christ redeemed you. Christ saved you to fill you with his very presence because where you are is where Christ wants to be. Where you are is where Christ wants to be. So yes, he's Savior, and yes, he's Lord. And in the upper room, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friend. I call you friend is what he says. And that's the beautiful truth of the gospel is that our redemption is for the sake of relationship. And now that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, lives within us, we now are supernaturally empowered to walk in newness of life. And this truth of a relational approach to God's law changes how we approach his law. His law is a law of love. Often we have a motivation when we talk about God's law and obeying his commands of I just want to obey God's commands to get a God who hates me off of my back. I just want to get him off my back. Oh, gosh, I just feel so guilty, and I just obey this. Like, just leave me alone. When, in fact, the opposite is true, where I love God so much because he first loved me and sent his son to die for me that I want as much of God as I can get, so I want to obey his commands. And so then our refrain, going back to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5a, is this is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so my motivation for purity in my heart is I want to see as much of God as I can in my life. I want to experience much of his goodness and his kindness and his grace, and I know that nothing will ever separate me from his love, like nothing can, can separate me from my union with him, but my communion, my fellowship can be tarnished by unrepentant sin in my life. And so the pure in heart will see God. I love God so much, I want to bend my knee and walk in purity and holiness to get as much sight of him as I can. And this is how Jesus links love in our hearts to the law. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus, when asked about what the greatest command is, Jesus says, this is the greatest command. He said to them, this is the greatest command. You shall obey the Lord your God. Did Jesus say that? He said, you shall love the Lord your God. That's the greatest commandment. Not obedience, love, delight, and affection. With your heart, with your soul, with your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and uh, the prophets. And so notice here, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God, not just obey God. And what we learn here, the truth is God is after your heart long before he's after your hands. He's after your heart long before he's after your hands. He's after your affections long before he's after your actions. He wants you. He wants the real you. The real you, just as you are, has to meet the real nail-scarred Jesus who died for the real you. 
And in this religious masquerade, we have a fake me trying to meet the fake Lord, not understanding that the real reason Jesus Christ came was to seek and save that which is lost, to embrace uh, war-torn, ragged, rugged, gritty sinners. So the real you and all of your sin has to meet the real Jesus, and he invites you to come to him just as you are. It's the very work he came to do, to seek and save sinners. And if God gets your heart, if he gets your affections, my, 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 does he get your actions, your obedience. And this would lead Jesus to say in the upper room, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not keep my commandments to be loved by me. I love you. I died for you, even in your sins. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If, you, if you're here, you've been married, and, and on your wedding day, you say some marriage vows, and you say this, and you say that, until, you're, until both of us are broken, busted, as long as there's breath in my lungs, I pledge my faithfulness to you. I love you. Listen, on April 7, 2012, I didn't, I didn't marry my vows. You guys tracking with me on that? I married my wife, whom I love with every fiber of my being. And out of that love, out of that love, man, oh man, I want to keep those vows with everything I have, faithful to the end, as long as there's breath in my lungs. I loved you as Christ has loved me. I did not marry my vows. We did not marry a book. We did not get redeemed by a book. We got redeemed by Jesus, whom this precious gift of God book testifies about. That's his heart for us. It's his heart for us. And so, band, you can come on forth. I'm going to conclude. The application, the application is this. I don't want any of us leaving here this morning thinking I'm up here wagging my finger at you saying, have you all been keeping God's commands? Now go and keep God's commands. That's not the application. The one question application this morning is, do you love God? Do we love God? Do we delight in him? Do we delight in him? And we'll understand will understand um, we will begin to walk in obedience to God when we understand how much he has loved us in our sins because here's what I'm going coming full circle from the, the illustration in the beginning is this is that God gives us his commands because he's a father and he loves us and he wants what's best for us and so earlier this week I have a son he's about one and a half he's walking and uh, there's a baby gate at the top of the stairs that he whenever it's open he, he does his like baby crawl towards and he wants to go down like tumble all the way down the stairs toward, plummet to his death and earlier this week I ran up and I and I slapped the uh not him I shut the gate in front of his face before he went down the stairs why because I love him and my son looked at me with this look of like you cosmic killjoy you know like you must hate me you must hate me. And what my son doesn't realize with that fence that I put there is saying, the reason I put this fence here is because I delight in you. If you go that way, if you go that direction, you plummet towards your death and we no longer get to wrestle on the floor. I no longer get to throw you up in the air and hear you giggle and laugh. I no longer get to rock you to bed and pray over you as I put you to bed. If you make that decision, I lose you. So I put that fence there because I love you. I delight in you. 1 John 5, 3 said, said that God's commands are not burdensome. They're for our good. 
And God loves us so much he gave us his law, but God loves us so much that when he, he gave us the law, the fence, and we opened that gate and all of us, every one of us, me being the foremost here, we opened that gate, we looked at God, we shaked our fists to the heavens and we decided to plummet down to our death and to dance with the devil and to disobey his righteous laws. That God loved us so much that he didn't just give us the law, where the law failed, he gave us the gift of his precious son, Jesus Christ. Because he delights in you and he delights in his son. His son, Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed had one final prayer with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus has the horror of the wrath of God being poured out on the sins of man that, 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 that next day that he's wrestling with. And he's in the garden and he's crying out and he's saying, God, let this cup pass from me, the cup of your wrath against sins that are not my own. But I'm a spotless lamb. Jesus is in a pool of tears, a pool of snot. He's sweating blood. I imagine this is a violent crying out to God, loud enough for the disciples to hear. And then there comes a moment that our entire salvation hinges on, and it's a prayer of Jesus. And he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he gets on his feet, and he marches towards the cross to clear our debt of sin, to purchase us out of darkness into marvelous light, and so that he can dwell in us and among us forever. That's the love that God has for us. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, perfectly obeyed his father so that you and I now have the eternal privilege to call God our father. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that you came running for us, God. As we were running away from you and our sins and trespasses and repeatedly opening gates that you've told us to close in our lives, God. Maybe even this past week, God. That you constantly pursue us, you constantly chase us down, and you constantly remind us of the precious hope of the gospel that we would never measure up to the righteous requirements of the law, but our salvation is found in Jesus Christ, the only one who did. He lived the perfect life, fully yielded to his Father, gladly yielded to his Father, and he died. He took on our sins, sins that were not his own, so that we could be saved and set free and reconciled and restored back to right relationship with you. So I ask Holy Spirit, you'd come right now, God and you would break off any guilt that people are living in, any condemnation, any judgment, any harshness on past, uh, of past mistakes that they've made, any lies they're believing about their standing with you, thinking that they're not saved. God, their salvation lies outside of themselves, has nothing to do with their works, and has everything to do with the work of another, and his name is Jesus, God. So come, Holy Spirit, and break off shame, break off condemnation, break off the lies of the enemy, God. I pray, God, that you would fill us with your love, God. You'd fill us with your love, God the fullness of your love by your spirit, Lord Jesus. 
that we would see the height and the length and the depths of your love for us, all the ways that you and our stories have continually sought us, at, sought us out. In our sins, you chased us down. You rescued us from the fire that we were dancing in. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. You're a generous God, and we celebrate your love and your generosity today. And Lord, now may we leave here, Lord, looking at the one who first loved us and have that love that warm our affection so that we would gladly lay down our will to you and proclaim your lordship in our lives. Saying, not my will be done, Jesus, but may my life be a living testimony to the one who saved me from my sins. I live for your glory and the glory of your name. This, had, this no longer has anything to do about me and my kingdom, but everything to do about my king, my redeemer, the one who died to set me free. Because I belong to an eternal kingdom. When the nations are raging and the world is shaking, my kingdom, my king will not be shaken because he's already purchased my victory and our victory. So we worship you today, God. Come, Jesus, have your way. Praise in your name. Amen.